everybody, and welcome in to the I Want to Know podcast. I am your host, Greg Jones, and I am the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Today on the show, I have Shenandoah Shafalo. Hopefully, I can keep getting that right for the rest of the show. We shall see. But before I tell you about her, I want to thank everyone for listening, tweeting, submitting questions, and most importantly, telling a friend about the show. Telling someone about this podcast is the only way the word gets spread. So please keep on spreading that word. And don't forget everything you need from a guest, whether it's uh, links, contact info, anything. It can all be found in the guest section of IWantToKnowShow.com. Now on to today's guest. Shenandoah Shafalo is not just a life coach and author, but more importantly, a survivor. After years of abuse, neglect, and trauma, she beats the odds, literally, we're going to talk about numbers later, to pull herself up and make a change not only for herself, but hopefully for millions of other foster children. Her new book, Garbage Bag Suitcase, is now available and is a must-read for social change. Shenandoah, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me tonight. Thanks, Greg, for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really glad you came on. You know, we exchanged a couple of emails. You sent me your book. I thought, all right, just a, another book that I'm receiving for the show. <laughs> um, let me tell you, and I mean this in the most complimentary of ways, I was explaining to my girlfriend earlier, I don't know how I'm going to convey to people that they should really read this. You know, I get books. I say, hey, you should read the book. It was a good book. And it, and it always is a good book. I wouldn't say a horrible book is a good book. But I, I don't know how I'm going to convey to people that like they really need to read this book. It was super eye-opening, and I, I don't know how to explain. I, I hope the, the interview does it justice and people will go check it out. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I spent four and a half years working on it, so it was a labor of love, and, and I thought about quitting several times. But, but you hit on something key there, which is I really wanted to leave people at the end, A, wanting more, but also wanting to get involved in social change and social issues in our country. Yeah, and I think you do an amazing job at that. I uh, indirectly work for government, and I'm not at all involved with the foster care, but I see through my job a lot of the news that comes in with it. And out here in L.A. County, there's a lot of issues going on with foster care <laughs> and kids dying. And so I, I, you know, when I saw the topic, I thought, well, this could be a great topic because we're kind of entrenched in this right now. But I had no idea like how, uh, you know, how eye-opening it would really be and, and just, you know, how people could treat people, whether it's their children or not their children, you never really think that's what's going on. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's a system that most people know exists, but they don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, particularly. Sure. But it's actually a really invasive to the rest of our culture in ways that most people don't understand, right? It, it weaves itself into all of our social issues like homelessness and incarceration and substance abuse in ways that most people don't see that connection, um, which is what I wanted to teach people with the book, that it's probably part of your life whether you realize it or not. Yeah, it's one of those things that before I got involved with, you know, where I am and before I was reading the book, you just think, all right, foster care system that, you know, that kid was adopted or, or went through and, you know, that's not the best option. But, you know, whatever, they, they lived somewhere and grew up. And you don't really think about, like, how horrible it really is. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and, and often, right, you think it's going to be better than maybe the situation you're currently in as a child. I did. And then you quickly realize, hmm, maybe I was better off in the first dysfunctional family I was a part of. Yeah, or at very best, you're trading one evil for the other. 
Exactly, right? The devil you know versus the devil you don't. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what, before I move any further, you guys, uh, Garbage Bag Suitcase is the book. GarbageBagSuitcase.com, Facebook.com slash Garbage Bag Suitcase. And you can tweet at Shen Shafalo. It's C-H-E-F-A-L-O. And I will have all the links to the book and to her on, on the website as well. I want to know show.com. So make sure you check those out. Uh, okay, on to my questions. I have a few listener questions. Hopefully we can get to at least most of them tonight. Um, sure. First of all, easy. How difficult was reliving all these past memories when you started writing this book? Well, so it's the first thing I like to tell people, which is I actually never told anyone these stories for almost 20 years. Um, in fact, I had been married for over... 13 years before I even disclosed them to my husband. It it was really something that I kept hidden and only because of my career, which then kind of led me to wanting to understand incarceration more. Um, My husband's a criminal defense attorney and I was running law offices for criminal defense attorneys. And I was really intrigued and interested in knowing why we had such a high rate of incarceration in this country And more so, I wanted to know about the people we were incarcerating. And I started just asking our clients, not in some sort of scientific matter, but I was just curious about their backgrounds. And more and more of them started disclosing to me that they had been in foster care. And so that intrigued me to start doing some research and me finding out that we had 1.6 million prisoners in this country and approximately 1.2 million had been former foster youth, which was a little bit more than a coincidence in my world. Yeah. Um, and I realized that if I was, I was kind of pursuing advocacy work and talking a lot about kids in care and this incarceration issue But if I really wanted people to buy in, I had to be honest with my own story. And so um, I think it's part of the reason it took me four and a half years, because there were some stories I didn't want to share in the book, right? I think if if everyone wrote a book about themselves, there's always something you don't want to put in the book. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And when I was to kind of some final edits, my editor came back and said, listen, the book is great, but here's some spots where I feel like you're holding back. And when she said that, the spots that she was talking about, I knew exactly what stories I was holding back on. And I said, okay, if I'm really going to do this and if I'm going to be really honest with the world and if I want the world to really make changes, then it's only fair I give them the whole story. And so I had to add in stories that were super frightening and, and, you know, panic ridden for me. Um, for lots of reasons, not just reliving them, but for what people are going to say and judge you for them later. Right. So, um, so I put them in there, but not without some pain and some careful thought. And at the, at the time of writing, probably in the last six months, I was in all honesty, hiking about 10 miles a day, (laughs) um, to deal with my anxiety because I was just, I remember the night before the book came out, I, I looked at my husband and said, I think I might have just made the biggest mistake in the oh, world. Geez. Because you, it's just that, you know, what if, of course, every negative thing is going through your mind, right? What if nobody ever reads this book? Uh, what if it's the worst thing somebody's ever written? What if people say really negative things? You know, everyone's going to judge me. They're going to all know that I've been lying for these 20 years about all of these secrets. Um, and so it was scary, but it was also very cathartic and freeing 
because that secret was a heavy weight for a lot of years. Yeah, I imagine. Did you have, you know, friends coming out like, hey, I had no idea. What the hell? Or Yeah, I had kind of stepped away from my job when I started to write the book. Um, well, I was working in the beginning, I was working full time. But then as I got closer to the end, I kind of, you know, stepped off of boards I was on and volunteer work. And so it kind of disappeared. Um, like I think people think, right? Writers are all recluses. <laughs> And I disappeared. Well, I still live in a small town. And so I would, you know, occasionally run into people and they'd say, well, what are you doing? What are you working on? And, oh, I'm writing this book. Oh, what's it about? Ah, the foster care system. Oh, that's interesting. What, what made you want to research the foster care system? Oh, well, you know, I'd spend time in the foster care system myself. And then people were like, wait, what? You know, it just wasn't how they they saw me in the world. And so... You know, I joke now that it was really my coming out party. Yeah, kind of was. Um, I'm not going to give I'm not going to give details of the book because I just feel like I would do it an absolute injustice <laughs> if I did. Um, but towards the end of the book, you were talking about um, you don't do therapy because you don't trust the process and you have you know trust issues from growing up as well as being forced into counseling. Um, do you think that therapy? Could two part could care could therapy be maybe good for you in the sense that it might force you to trust? And would you recommend it to people in similar situations as you? I think everybody has to do what's right for them. And I really, I'm not trying to take the cheap way out. Um, I, I mean, lots of, there's been lots of times in my life where I thought, you know, probably three months of therapy could have solved in what took me two years to solve. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just could never bring myself to that point. You know, I had some, some, fairly bad counseling over my young life and it never seemed to be what I thought you know when you go to a counselor as a kid in foster care and then all those details are shared with all the people around you it then becomes really hard to trust any counselor right and I've just never been able to get over that I know a lot of other former foster youth who feel the same way can counseling benefit some people I absolutely believe it can you know, I've just been lucky in that I have found some great books and great resources along my life and journey that have kind of always been the information I needed just when I needed it. And I feel lucky in that way. Um, but it's absolutely right for some people. It just hasn't been right for me. Does it make you feel uh, stronger that you were able to kind of come through it on yourself instead of the use of therapy? Well, I don't know, stronger. I mean, sometimes I'm just frustrated with myself that uh, <laughs> it, it took me so long and I know I could have probably got through it, uh, you know, faster with somebody else. I recently met a woman who does specifically trauma counseling and I just thought, well, where was she 15 years ago, you right. know? Um, and so, you know, yes and no. If I probably met the right person now, I mean, I... I think I still need help. There's things that I'm still struggling with, you know, from 20 plus years ago. Um, but I work through it. I become more aware of things, you know, but if somebody finds someone that works for them, then, hey, more power to you. Yeah. And you're absolutely very honest in the book about the problems you still have and are still struggling with, which was nice. I mean, not, not yeah, nice, nice, I but... No, but I think that's the honesty, right? And and that's one of the points that I wanted to drive home with the book is, listen, so even after you survive this and, you know, I had a successful career and a successful family and everyone thinks, hey, everything's fine with you. Why are you bringing up all of this stuff from a really long time ago? 
there's things I'm still contending with. You know, I was with a group of um, kids who are just aging out of the foster care system right now. So they're between 18 and and 23, roughly. Mm -hmm. And they were just talking about some issues they had. And I just finally had to raise my hand and say, listen, I'm, you know, 22 years past where you guys are. And I'm still dealing with some of these things you're talking about. They're, they're very real things. We have to be honest about it. But, you know, some of these things are just never going to go away. Speaking of, I mean, therapy and, and, you know, making yourself better. I really don't mean this to sound bad. And this is going to sound really bad. But are, I was a little surprised. Are you surprised that you didn't try to take your life more than you did? You talked about the one incident yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't sound terrible. I mean, I think we should talk about suicide because it's a really real thing that happens in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I had hope a lot of times, you know, before I go into the foster care system, I have hope that the foster care system is going to save me when I'm kind of in the foster care system. I kind of have this in the back of my mind that perhaps college will save me. And then at college, it, it kind of catches up to me, right? Like, wait, nothing's saving me right. here. And I think it's just the, the finale of me completely giving up. And I think that's a lot of what suicide is. At least that's what it was for me when I attempted is I just can't be in this much pain any longer. I, I give up obviously wasn't successful for me. And then you have to go on and learn from that. Um, but I, I always thought as a child and through all the abuse and dysfunction that it would get better. And for me, when I got to college, that was kind of the, the pinnacle of it's not going to ever get better. Yeah. Uh, listener Shannon has a question. She wants to know, do foster kids get any say in, in where they live? Um, occasionally, but very rarely, um, sometimes older kids in, in very specific situations do, but no, oftentimes you're placed with strangers in the middle of the night with no say at all. And if there's a problem with where you are, or if you don't like, I mean, is there any options or you just kind of have to get yourself kicked out? Yeah, there's, there's few options. You can, if there's issues going on in the home, you can report them. Um, foster kids, are very unlikely to report any abuse that's going on in a foster home. We kind of have this unspoken rule that it could always be worse at a different home, which is very true. Yeah. And, and so we're very unlikely to report abuse. So that's one of the issues. And secondly, kids aren't really believed that often, even when they do report abuse. And so if you report something and nobody believes you, and then you still have to live in that home. The repercussions can be pretty severe. It's another reason why they don't report. And so, you know, there's there's not much follow through for a kid. Um, recently, there's CASAs, Court Appointed Special Advocates. Okay. That's an all volunteer program that some kids get a CASA, not all kids, because there's not enough volunteers across the country for them. Some kids will report to their CASAs, who are basically the only advocate the kid has, which I always find humorous as a volunteer in this whole complicated system. Um, 
but a lot of kids don't have them. I didn't have one when I was in care. And so you're really on your own. So unless you know how to work through the system and call a, a caseworker supervisor, which let's be honest, most kids don't know how to do, right. you're, you're kind of stuck with what you get. Yeah, I'd imagine there's a certain level of uh, foster parents probably not letting total free access to the phones also. Yeah, it, I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a lot of manipulation. You know, caseworkers now are supposed to meet with kids privately. That rarely happens. Most kids will tell you that their foster parents are present when they're interviewed by their caseworker. So again, you're not going to disclose the rate of caseworker turnover effects. So by the time you kind of build trust with a caseworker, they're probably gone or have moved on to the next case. So it's really tough. And so a lot of things go unreported. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, in the book, we, we learn a lot of, well, towards the end, we learn a lot about your biological father and that, uh, you know, the building of that relationship later in life. And then we also, of course, learn about your, uh, your mother and, and a horrible situation with that and your stepfather. And the one thing that really took me about you as a person is you have this way to, to forgive them. How do you learn a skill like, like forgiveness in the way that you have? Well, um, a lot of yoga and meditation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was never really angry, uh, particularly people bring up my biological mother a lot. I think that is very surprising to them the way that my final thoughts on her. Um, and, and really it's this, is that I never truly felt that my mother abandoned me. And that's a hard concept for most people to understand. But I really felt like I abandoned my mother. And mm. so I had a lot of guilt, just personal guilt. So I wasn't angry um, as a child or even... Um, going into foster care. There there were for sure moments that I was angry with her, but by and large, I felt guilty that I had left her and not, that I had abandoned her, which was the way I viewed it. And I think that played a big part um, in why it was a little bit easier to forgive her. Um, but it's taken a lot of time too. And, and there's still days, there's still moments on, you know, on Mother's Day where you still get that twinge of, you know, just <laughs> sure. frustration with what you have when you see how much everyone else loves their mother. Um, and knowing that you're not going to have that sort of relationship, you know, there's maybe a jealousy, right, that that you can't have that. But really, it's just saying that I'm in charge of my life. This is how I view forgiveness, that I'm in charge of my life, and I'm not going to let you in on this part, that's a really a lot of fun and the cool person I've turned out to be. Well, at least I think I've turned out to be cool. My 14-year-old might disagree. <laughs> I think all 14-year-olds disagree. <laughs> I know. It's part of the deal, I think. So, yeah. you know, she just gets to miss out on this. And if I hold on to that anger, it's almost as if she's a part of what's going on right now. Do you find that, that letting go of that anger is easier for you know, uh, former foster youth and people, you know, like in your situation, or are you just much better at looking at this? No, I think for people in general, I think all people are different, former foster youth or, or otherwise. Um, I, you know, I've just made a conscious decision that I can't hold on to the anger because it's not really getting me anything. And it really only hurts me. Like, she doesn't know I'm angry, so what difference does it make? You know, like... True, yeah. She's on living her life 
And so the anger is really only affecting me and my current relationships. And that was a big part of saying, okay, I can be okay with where we are. And, and I believe this truly, which is she made her decisions and I think she's really comfortable with the decisions that she made. Yeah, so I guess even if you did talk to her, telling her that she's a horrible person probably wouldn't affect her. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I mean, she maybe made really selfish decisions, but at the end of the day, she did everything the way she wanted to do it. And it's kind of what everybody in the world's trying to do, right? Like, true. we're all just trying to, like, live our lives the way we want to live our lives. You know, I mean, I don't agree with all of her decisions. Right. But she did it. She lived life her way. And I can't fault her for that. But I also don't have to have her as a part of my life. Absolutely. And I don't have to hold on to the anger for it. And I believe it's a choice. It's a choice if you want to be angry. Yeah, I, I, I respect that a lot. Uh, towards the end of the book, you start talking about potential solutions for the problem with foster care and, and, and all that. One of the things you mentioned, or actually two of the things you mentioned, are boarding schools and then foster families as possible solution. Um, I think we all understand what a boarding school is, but describe some of this foster family that you talk about. Yeah, well, fostering the whole family is this idea that a lot of times we remove a kid from a family um, because there's some underlying trauma going on. So if we use my own situation as an example, yes, my family was dysfunctional. Uh, yes, there was substance abuse issues. Uh, yes, there was physical, mental, emotional neglect and abuse in that situation. But the question is, is what was my mother's underlying abuse, right? What was her underlying trauma? And was that ever addressed? Hmm. Was there a way to address both her issues and the issues I was having all at once without having to actually remove me from the house. So could could we have all been fostered? You know, my mom was 16 when she had my half-brother. She was 21 when she had me. So there's a lot going on about a person who maybe doesn't even know how to parent and then trying to overcome their own trauma and issues at the same time. And so there's kind of this movement of can we keep families intact by mentoring basically the whole family? and helping both the biological mother and the children move forward in a positive way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It seems like every study you see, you know, the biggest impact to a child is an intact family. Right. And we know that the, the removal itself causes an additional trauma. So yes, there's trauma happening in the family, but the removal itself causes trauma. And so now, obviously some kids need to be removed for safety reasons, right? So so that's an issue, and, and they're obviously not families that would be something we'd be looking at this. But perhaps a mom who has a substance abuse issue and is a single mom with three kids, we might want to look at it a little differently. Would mom be better, you know, if she wasn't, if she didn't have the substance abuse problem, could she be a better parent? And if we were mentoring her through her sobriety and helping her, you know, with parenting issues, um, I was just listening to a mentor who was checking in on a family and Um, they had a newborn in the house and the mom was complaining to her that the newborn wasn't sleeping. And she went to the house and realized that the crib was sitting right next to the 60 inch television. And, uh, you know, the dad was coming home and he worked sort of like a split shift. Right. And the TV would be loud and then the baby would get up. But, but as a mother, she wasn't seeing that connection. And she just thought this baby never sleeps. 
And so, you know, the mentor suggested, well, what if we just moved this crib into this other room? <laughs> and then suddenly the baby was sleeping through the night. Man. You know, those are things that we can just teach. But if that situation stayed there and then the mother's losing sleep and she's getting more and more agitated and frustrated, then bad things can start to occur, right? We can get shaken baby syndrome and we can, you know, these bad things as they escalate and go unchecked can happen. And that's where fostering whole families can really have a positive impact in keeping families intact. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that could go for more than just people in bad, you know, say with parents who have uh, addiction issues. You know, think of um, Adrian Peterson, the football player who was copying his kid. You know, he did that because that's what he grew up with. Absolutely. Didn't know any better. Had he had some sort of mentoring program about being a dad that doesn't beat their kid, like that could have been a much better outcome. Right. Like new things that we know, understanding how trauma affects the brain, right? All of those things that we didn't know five years ago, let alone 20 years ago, um, really changed the way people see parenting. I do a lot of trauma workshops with both foster parents and social workers. And I, I just had a foster parent who was taking in his grandkids. And he said, I said, well, why'd you decide to take this class? And he said, because I'm really old school. And old school's not working with these kids. Hmm. And I thought that, well, that's really insightful and powerful on his part, right? That he knew his old way of raising his own child wasn't going to work with his grandchildren, you know, this time around. And he needed new skills. And I think that's what, you know, kind of fostering the whole family and just more mentoring for parents in general is about. Yeah. And it's too bad more people can't be as open-minded as him to kind of look on yourself and realize what you're doing wrong. Yeah. And, and understanding that, I mean, especially with foster kids, right? So as a foster child myself, I had a 92% chance of having my own daughter in foster care. Wow. Now let's just for a second say that happened. So I didn't learn any parenting skills from my own parent because I was in foster care clearly. Yeah, so obviously. where would I learn parenting skills? And now I have this child you know, that's a, a group of people who really do need parenting support, right? Maybe more than um, other people who have grandparents that can help or say something or, or step in, you know, and there's a whole generation with 500,000 kids in care every year in this country. There's generations of kids who've never had a parental figure. Yeah. Wow. Makes a lot of sense. Um, besides, you know, the boarding schools, the foster families, is there like a, a small step that could be taken that would kind of really move things in the right direction? I think there's two things that could happen right away, which kind of comes back to your first question, which is better matching of foster kids to foster parents. Mm -hmm. You know, the current system is where's there a bed available? Here you go. And I, you know, like every eHarmony commercial I have to watch where in 22 questions, they'll find us our perfect mates. Right. You know, I'd love for us to spend just a couple of hours up front trying to find the best foster parents for a specific kid or kids. You know, I use the example of if you have a 10 year old boy who is a typical 10 year old boy and likes to get out and play and be rough and, and roll around in the mud and you give them to a foster family who maybe enjoys trips to the library and robotics club, <laughs> you know, it's probably not a good match for either of them. Right. And not that there's something wrong with either of those scenarios. They're both fine on their own, but together it can cause friction. 
Unfortunately, in the foster care system, when it causes friction, it reflects on the child usually, and pretty soon they become known as a child who can't get along anywhere. And, and that's a real problem where if we could have just spent a little bit more time, maybe we could have found the local soccer coach who would have been a really good fit for that kid. And he would have had more success right out of the gate and would have fewer trust issues and later in life and all of those things that come after, you know, failed placement after failed placement. Yeah. You know, one thing that makes me think of, and, and I didn't really realize this until reading the book and all, and all this, it seems like it's much harder to adopt a dog than it is to adopt a child. Absolutely. I use that example all the time. Yeah, if we, you've ever tried to adopt a dog, it's hard. Yeah. I, I just did it in January and <laughs> we had to jump through hoops just to get a dog. And how many house visits did you have? Well, we kept going to these places that kept saying house visits and, and they kept asking, you know, do you work full time? Like, well, yes, we work full time. Like, well, you can't have a dog. Yeah. And so finally we found, you know, just a, a county ran shelter <laughs> that was just wanted their dogs to be in good homes. Unlike these weirdos who wanted to keep their dogs forever. Yeah. And, you know, so it's that, but you know, the other thing is, is even with shelter dogs and probably at the County, when you even went to the County shelter, right. Where they say, you know, this dog would not be good with cats right? Exactly. or this dog, probably not with small children, right. They kind of tell you these things, but in the foster care system, here you go. I mean, there's just no, I mean, both from a foster parent perspective and a child's perspective where, you know, you have to also realize that you're asking a child to move in with strangers. So just like when you leave your house, the next time you leave your house or office, the first person you see who you don't know, just imagine you had to go live with them that tonight. That'd be insane. Right? I mean, as an adult with all the skills and abilities that you have, um, just pick a random person off the street and say, I'm going to go live with them. That's pretty much what we're doing to kids on a daily basis. I mean, we wouldn't even go to the bar with a random stranger. Right. Go stay at their house. Right. So like, nope, moving in. Here's my garbage bag full of stuff. Uh, where would you like me to sleep tonight? You know? And so now be a child who doesn't have the social skills and the ability to understand these complex happenings. Right. So it's all a very confusing time. So if you did adopt a dog, it probably took a day or two for the dog to warm up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and everyone says, oh, well, that's normal and natural. But for a kid, when they can't get in line right away, then it's, well, what's their problem? Or this is too much and I can't take it. Or God forbid, if they push away a little bit and have a negative reaction to anybody, then then they're even more problematic. Yeah. You know, when in the book you talk about when you uh, were placed with a family, that they were taking the money that, you know, the system sends out for, for your care. It, it seems almost backwards to me. And uh, tell me what you think. You adopt a dog, you have to pay for it. You adopt yeah. a child, you get paid. Should we, yeah. should we stop paying families to adopt children? Well, you know, some, some liken it to like legalized human slavery, right? I mean, you're, you're exchanging cash for kids. Yeah. And, and that's a really scary concept. Are there great foster parents out there who aren't in it for the money? Yes. Are there people who make the argument that, well, they're not getting paid enough to make that worth it? There are people who are making that argument. But I always bring it back to this. How much money is a lot of money depends on who you're asking. Because my idea of a lot of money and Donald Trump's idea of a lot of money, I'm pretty sure are in two different spectrums. 
And so, you know, if, if I'm a family that has three kids already, and maybe the dad makes a decent living doing whatever he has, but it doesn't make sense for mom to go to work because whatever she would make would only cover daycare of the three biological kids they already have. Pretty soon it starts to make sense to say, well, why don't we bring in one, two or three foster kids and supplement our stay at home mom income with that money? Yeah, you're already at home anyways. Yeah, you're already at home. So you are making money. So this idea of, of money, I think, makes it very complicated. I know that some families would not be able to foster without it. But I think um, as soon as foster kids especially are old enough to understand the money trade for them, it becomes really difficult to be able to connect when you know somebody's getting paid to look after you versus doing it out of love and compassion. Yeah, I'd imagine even if this person was doing it for the right reasons, to know they're getting paid would be a little disheartening. Yeah, I mean, there's this hilarious comic uh, uh, who said, you know, when he was in his foster home, when he realized that the lady was getting money and then she would ground him from watching TV and then he'd remind her that he pays the cable bill, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of, I think that's the way, you know, that a lot of people see it. A lot of foster kids see it. I mean, just think yourself, if like you realized your mom and dad actually got paid to raise you, sure. like you kind of see it in a whole different way. Right. And that's what happens to foster kids. Yeah. I wish they'd pay me to raise my dog. That'd be great. All right, me too. Yeah. Uh, listener Teresa wants to know, she says, I know medical and dental services are covered uh, in the system, but what about therapy and mental health services? Uh, sometimes, if you have counselors in your area that will take your state insurance. So not, a, and not after you age out, not after 18, until we got Obamacare. And, yeah, I guess now you have to have insurance. Right, unless you opt out of that, which a lot of foster kids do. Interesting. Um, why the huge, or in your opinion, I guess, unless there's you know real fact on this, why why the huge amount of psychotropic drugs being used in the foster care system? Uh, simple for me, it's you know you have kids in trauma, and to treat trauma it takes a lot of patience, and to prescribe a drug takes little effort, and so. Um, that's one reason. The second reason is the more issues that are assigned to a foster kid, the more money they're worth. Interesting. So every time something's wrong with you, and and I talk about this in the book, right, with am I bipolar or manic depressive a lot. Right. Because if those things are wrong with me, I'm suddenly worth more money in the system because I'm I'm more difficult. So I'm special needs, right? And so... That takes more time, so that's more money. And it's almost advantageous then to start giving you drugs, and then people Absolutely. will want you more. Yeah, because you're worth more money, and so and you're probably if you're on your medication, you're probably not doing a lot. You're probably pretty lethargic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, so we saw an increase um, in the late '80s and early '90s with Ritalin. Right, everyone was getting prescribed Ritalin in yeah. foster care, and then that changed with ADHD and ADD, and almost every kid was getting prescribed medicine for that. And what we really know is that trauma is at the base of this, and that trauma can present itself to look a lot like ADHD and associative disorders and 
um, all sorts of things they've terms they've you know oppositional defiant disorder and all of these things that they've kind of made up which is really just saying this kid has trauma and we'll just give them these drugs instead of addressing it and trying to heal the trauma to move forward. So when they age out, are they all of a sudden just kicked off these drugs too, if they don't get their own insurance? Yeah. If they can't, if they can't continue or if they're not going to their follow-up appointments. Yeah. So even if they did need them because they did have those things, a lot of times they'll go off their medication and that's why, you know, we're using alcohol and heroin and meth and you see all of those things, which then ultimately leave to prison. Right. So <laughs> it's just a big, huge circle. Yeah. Wow. Um, listener Becky wants to know, how do we encourage more of the good people, good families to become foster parents? It's a great question. Um, I think we need more community support for foster families, for the foster families who are really doing it for all the right reasons. They really don't have a lot of support or resources in the community. A lot of people don't understand the foster care system and don't understand the special challenges that their families have. Um, because they have foster children. People are impatient. People don't like when kids are rude. Um, I just had a, a new foster mom telling me the story that she was in line with three kids, uh, her three new foster kids, she, young woman. She was only 26 at the time, and she was trying to use um, basically her WIC card had never used it before, didn't know how to use it, and was taking some time in the older gentleman behind her got upset because she was taking so much time and started berating her about being on government assistance and how she could get a job. And what he failed to understand was, is those three children were actually her nieces and nephews and her sister had died in an automobile accident and she took custody of them. And as a 26 year old woman had no means to support three children on her salary. Sure. Um, but he didn't stop to care to listen to that. Instead, he wanted to berate her for, for using government assistance, right? And I think as a society, we have to be willing to support these families, ask better questions, and dig a little deeper to understand what it is they're really going through. And I didn't even think about it. how weird that they would have this special, what do you call it, a Wix card? Yeah, the WIC card, uh, which is what we call it in Michigan. I don't know why you guys call it out in California, but it basically is, you know, giving what the old food stamp program was. Sure. Yeah, because, you know, I was I lost my job a few years ago, was unemployed for a short period of time. And on that during that time, I was on unemployment, but there was no special card that said I'm an unemployed loser. They just gave <laughs> me a debit card with a bank account that they would monthly put money into or weekly. Right, right. And, you know, you just know the amount of judgment. You've probably seen it yourself. You've probably thought it yourself at one time or another. Gee, why doesn't that person just get a job? Why doesn't that, you know? Sure. And you've really, we've got to want to ask better questions. We've got to stop with our immediate judgment. And Gee, what's wrong with that person? Gee, what a loser. Why don't they just do something? And we got to really start asking, what's their story? You know, what's happened to them? Why does this 26-year-old have three kids that she's clearly trying to feed? What's going on with that? You know, why don't I ask her if she needs some help and let go of these preconceived notions that I kind of think the media feeds us? Yeah. And you talk about what's your story. And 
thinking that people just need to get a job, you know, especially homeless people. You see someone homeless asking for money, you know, hey, loser, just get a job. And, you know, sometimes that's the case, but for the most part, it's probably very not. infrequently. I, I've actually been surprised in my own town when I talk to the homeless people in my own town, how many have been former foster youth themselves, um, how many. So that trauma has led them to addiction, which has led them to a criminal record, which makes it very difficult to get a job. And, you know, it's kind of a circle that they can't get out of. Yeah. And speaking of uh, incarceration, in the book, you say $23 billion is, sp- is spent on child wear- welfare systems. I can't talk right now. And $78 billion on incarcerated inmates. You know, why won't they kind of reverse that number around and potentially save themselves some money in the long run? Yeah. I mean, this, this is my big argument, my advocacy work, you know, um, this past June when everyone was graduating from high school, right? You can start seeing all the memes about high school graduation. And there was one from, from two teens in Chicago, one dressed in her cap and gown and said, you know, Chicago paid, you know, $15,000 a year for me to graduate from high school. And in the picture next to her was a girl in the black and whites that said, you know, Chicago's paying $38,000 a year to house me. I mean, you know, it's, what are we doing? Yeah, and I've heard that numbers out here in LA reach somewhere around $100,000 a year for an inmate. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And California has the highest rate of incarcerating former foster youth of any state. (laughs) Yeah, it's insane. And Um, you're getting ready to close all of your group homes, which we could probably talk about in a separate issue, which I also (laughs) think is insane. (laughs) And LA County is trying to build another jail, so there's that. Well, because frankly, they're going to close, if they haven't closed already, they're getting ready to close all the the group homes and there's nowhere for those kids to go and they will become homeless. And when they become homeless, they will commit crime and you will need a bigger prison. Yeah, it, it's sad that they won't look at it from the other way. How about you? You start young and let's keep right. them out of jail. Right. And and we know exactly there, there are, I talk about them in the book, the Krasnor School in North Carolina. Yeah. There are programs that have higher high school and college graduations rates than any school in this country, including very elite private East Coast boarding schools uh, that are running on a very minimal budget with kids, all from foster care systems. So we know there's a better way. We're just choosing not to do it because it takes a lot of money to operate that school. Yeah. Um, all right, let's turn things around to the positive now. What is one positive step that has been taken lately in foster care? Uh, a lot of states are looking at increasing the age of foster care from 18 to 21. So essentially right now you age out at midnight of your 18th birthday, regardless of when that occurs. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to me. Um, a lot of states are trying to increase that to 21. It would be optional for kids. They wouldn't mandatory have to stay in until 21, but that would give them, um, if they did opt into the system until 21, it would give them some advantages with additional funding and resources instead of being out on their own at 18. So that is definitely a positive step. Yeah, It's, it's not working necessarily exactly how we'd like it to, because a lot of kids are not opting in, but it's a step in the right dis- direction. And I think we can, uh, work on tweaking that system and making it better to get more kids in the system. Okay. What can an average person do to help that doesn't necessarily want to adopt a child? Mentor, get involved. So 
first educate yourself about the foster care system. Know how it's affecting you and your community because it is. <laughs> and so as soon as you know how it's affecting you and your community, you can ask better questions. But get involved. I mean, coach a, a t-ball team, you know, hold an arts and crafts for kids, anything, because we know that resiliency in kids is built with just one stable, caring adult, and you could be that person. Absolutely. Um, have you ever considered fostering kids? Uh, my husband and I got our foster parent license. We held it for a very short time after having some difficulties with our local agency. Oh, okay. <laughs> and my last question for you, and back to the book, which is Garbage Back Suitcase, How, or has this uh, story been optioned for a movie or anything? Um, there's perhaps some talks about it, but I would love to entertain some more talks. I actually, <laughs> I actually have an idea of how we should turn it into a Netflix TV show. That would be great. That's where I think it should be. I, I said it earlier. The story is just absolutely insane, and it and it's all true. And I, I think if you told people that it's a true story, they would just be hooked right in. Well, and and I actually have this interesting idea of playing with time for the TV show, so we could just have basically this adult woman like walking through a regular person's life, but then having these triggers to these crazy stories. And then you could see the backstory, but you could also do the same thing with all the other crazy characters in the movie. Absolutely. Kind of uh, Quantico-esque if any of you guys watch Quantico. Yeah. But, I mean, I think we all want to know what happens to the lady in Las Vegas when I roll into her yard. Absolutely. Right? I so that's part of the TV show. You get to see, like, what she was thinking and why she didn't do anything and, and maybe what happened to cause nothing to happen in that situation. Yeah, and just think about walking away from that, you know, in a week or a month or a year, do you think, like, I hope that person is still alive? I mean, so many options. Well, right. I, I joke all the time, like, did she go, you know, it was the 70s. Did she go to lunch with her girlfriends later and have a martini and say, let me tell you this crazy thing that happened to me today. <laughs> right. Kids are just flying out of cars. Exactly. You just don't know what she did. And that's why we have to have the Netflix TV show. I'm excited. I'm on board. Okay. Once again, the, the book, it's Garbage Bag Suitcase, hopefully soon to be a Netflix special. You can get it uh, on Amazon. I'll have all the links for you guys over at IWantToKnowShow.com. The author, of course, Shenandoah Shafalo. Am I still saying that right? Shenandoah Shafalo. You got it. Oh, Shafalo. Okay, a little off. Anyways, <laughs> uh, you can get her on Twitter at Shen Shafalo, Facebook.com slash Garbage Bag Suitcase, and of course, Garbage Bag Suitcase.com. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Greg. It's been great. Thank you so much once again to Shenandoah. This book, I, I said it before, I'm not blowing smoke up anybody. This is a great read. It's super eye-opening, and her story is absolutely insane. So do check out Garbage Bag Suitcase. You can get it by going to the guest section of IWantToKnowShow.com. I've linked to Amazon. I've linked to her website. I've linked to everything. And let her know that you heard her on the show. I think she would like that. At Shen Shafalo. It's S-H-E-N-C-H-E-F-A-L-O. All one word. Facebook.com slash Garbage Bag Suitcase. And of course, Garbage Bag Suitcase.com. Check all those out. I think that's all I have for you guys. Of course, it's IWantToKnowShow.com. The show is on Facebook. Please give a follow. Facebook.com slash IWantToKnowShow. 
on Twitter at I Want to Know Show. Of course, you can send an email, I Want to Know Pod, switch it up for you, at gmail.com. You got a uh, guest suggestion, questions for any guests, anything you want to uh, send my way, please, please email. Also, do you have an iTunes account? I would absolutely love if you gave a nice little uh, five star review and rating over there. Helps get the show known by other people. It's a weird iTunes algorithm or whatever app you're using. You know, give it uh, the thumbs up or whatever the equivalence is, please. And also, if you're into beer, check out my other podcast, The Unfiltered Gentleman. It's a very different show, so uh, make sure you're ready for lots of beer talk. Anyways, that's all I have. Thank you once again for listening. And on that note, good night, everybody. <laughs>